The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I have Seth Godin here with me today. Hi, Seth. How are you, sir? Um, I'm great. And, uh, you know, your first time on here, um, doing The Moment with me early on in the show's life, it remains the episode I'm asked about the most frequently and that people thank me for. And I know that's because um, of a bunch of the stuff you said. So thanks for doing this again. It's actually a pleasure. It really has been fabulous to get to know you. And we've had off-microphone conversations that were even better than the ones on the air. No, it's true. Um, uh, becoming friends over this past while has been uh, has been great for me. And, you know, you've been more than a friend. You've been a mentor. And I want to talk about that and about how, how one decides, you know, how and, and when to be that to somebody. How one draws, you know, you and I have become friends, but how one... Uh, creates and has sort of like intimate moments with people as you do like you just ran this thing alt mba which i know you weren't right in the center of but you designed can you talk about what that was well we're going to do it again and again as long as people will let us the idea was uh we know that harvard business school and similar insane intense experiences transform people we also know that very few people have the opportunity uh, the resources, the time to go do that. So there's all this online education. The problem with online education is there's a huge abandonment rate. 99% of the people who take most online courses don't finish them, 99%. Because there's n- nothing lost, just walk away. So my thought was to invent a course for people who want to be really serious about it, not to lock up content that you can only see online. Uh, digital content spreads it should spread but to make it a group experience to put together a cohort of people and see if together they can change and you so you added this accountability not just to some like a teacher or grade but accountability to other people who need you to to do this stuff with them in order to, to thrive and make the thing successful right so we built it from the ground up it runs in slack it runs in zoom hd video conferencing and it runs in wordpress so other than um, as a business and for profit, um, which these endeavors, um, some of your endeavors are and some aren't, but other than for that motive, what is your mission in doing these things? Like, wh- What are you trying to solve or to learn in, in doing it? Um, because I think what I'm interested in beyond that as a part two of it is you're someone who doesn't do things that he doesn't want to do really. And so how did you decide that that was how you were going to live? And then how did you choose that, that this is the kind of thing you wanted to do? Well, you know, I think we talked before, the last time about watching the light go on for people. That is my mission. That is what I've been doing since I was 18 years old. That when I'm doing my best work, what I'm doing is engaging with someone and helping them see the world differently and let them do work that they care about. And sometimes you can do that with a book. And the magic of books used to be that millions of people would go to a store waiting for a light to be turned on. So it's scaled. And it was a a combination of a solitary endeavor, but a community one as well. I do it in person with people I care about. Um, But that doesn't scale. So the question is, is there a way in this post-book world to be able to create environments where people change. So I will run a you know a seminar in my little town of Hastings on Hudson. A couple hundred people will come. Sometimes we'll do an intense one, two or three days. You can see it. You can see it in people's faces. You, sometimes they'll cry. Sometimes they'll laugh. Sometimes they'll get to the next place. That's what I want. And um, I never keep track of whether there's a business there. Because that's what lights you up still. Yeah. That is the thing that lights you up still. Exactly. Is the the and so how do you get that thing doing this sort of online thing where you've taken yourself out of it? Is it about legacy? Like what? Right. So taking yourself out of it isn't really accurate. So I did a course at Udemy. It was one of the most popular courses. It's still running. It'll run forever. And 
I am out of that. The course is what it is. It's like a book. I'm done. It, I was talking to a friend the other day. I said, when you read my book, I don't come to your house and watch you read it. it the right. book's done. I wrote it a year ago, five years ago. That's what the Udemy course is like. This one, it's happening in real time. We can see the Slack room. We can see the comments. We can see what people are posting. That is the course, is the interactions. I'm watching there. I'm there. I'm just not the host necessarily i'm the architect well did you decide because we were talking about it before you actually launched and you told me you weren't sure how much you were going to interact with the people because you wanted right i thought you wanted to let it live without you interacting right so i'm limiting myself to like one a day one interaction a day because when it scales per person or because when it scales i can't keep up right when it scales and there's three sections running whatever it'll run so the architecture is what's important can you create an environment where really stellar people because everyone's in there by application only where really stellar people with the right motivation bump into each other for the right reason can you train the coaches there's five coaches in every section can you train them to be doing the work not of knowing the right answer because they're not a ta their job is to help lead people to the place they want to go in the first place this raises so many questions for me. I mean, how do you, how do you find people like the thing you, your clarity of thought that you've developed for such a long time, that you've worked so hard to develop, and that uh, your freedom helps you to develop, to think about, how do you give that to people who are then sort of a step removed from you, going to be able to coach and teach? How does it not become sort of an echo of an echo? Well, so I need to give you a detail so that you can understand what we're teaching. Please do. There are 12 projects. The project that was due yesterday was uh, write a short essay in public on our WordPress site that anyone can go read about why someone who disagrees with you about a fundamental issue is correct, why a customer who shops at your competitor is correct, why a VC who turns you down is correct. Because the word correct doesn't mean right. The word correct means, based on what they know and who they are, they did the right thing. And that's the prism. only thing we ever do is the right thing, based on who we are and what we know. From our lens, right? This is really hard, it turns out. Really, really hard. And it feels like it should be easy. But then you start writing it and you start like insinuating that they're stupid or insinuating that they're uninformed. or Because insinu- you're worried. That if you bless this person who believes the other thing, who believes you know, in denying this or doing that, you might be giving the universe permission to do it. And how dare you? You're like, it's really hard to let go of that. It takes humility. It takes generosity. It takes courage. All in one, right? Well, the coach's job isn't to be me. The coach's job is to see when the person isn't being everything they know how to be and say, did you think about this? Not in terms of the right answer, but when you wrote that sentence, does it sound to you the way it sounds to me? That tiny little bit of coaching done 2,000 miles away, asynchronously, is enough to turn on a light for somebody. How did you train the five people? How did you find people who you felt, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about in a good way, you know, in the end, Willy Wonka is heroic, right? Because in the end, Willy Wonka is not, uh, is only after finding people who have the, the right thing in their heart to go and do the thing. So as he says at the end of the movie, the first one of them, it's in the book, it's very hard, you know, to find this thing I trust and love. You're smiling because... I'm smiling because Willy Wonka used imported slave labor. And Willy Wonka is a crazy pedophile. But we're going to leave all that Willy Wonka There's stuff no proof side. that, first of all, the Loompa Loompas thanked him. Yeah, that's not untypical. But leaving that part aside, uh, all the coaches are people I've worked with in the past who have been in my seminars, who I've seen go on this journey. But what we did was we ran the whole thing with them as students. Great. And then I was the coach because I needed to help them understand I don't know any secret words. I don't know any secret answers. So I'm not going to tell you the secret answers because there aren't any. I just need to teach you to notice the things I'm noticing. And once you see the thread, they're obvious, right? And that's what it, what good light turning on is. So I would love for you to be a coach. You'd be a fabulous coach, but you're busy with your fancy TV show. Well, uh, if it was something you wanted me to try to do, I would, I would try to find the time because... Um it does sound totally fascinating. Like, I'd love to go through and see it. I mean, you got to show me some of the materials. I would love to it's look through it. It's very cool. It's working so much better than I even hoped. It's really 
Nice. So did you, how did you decide when to, like, when you were going to actually launch it? You'd gone through it with the five people, but, um, you know, we talked a lot about failure last time and sort of which kinds of failure we're comfortable with or how we decide something's a failure. How did you decide, okay, this is ready. I'm going to give this a shot. Cause when you do something, there are so many eyes on it and it's not just like putting out a book. You've put out a lot of books. So, and they're all hits. Was it at all scary for you, and how did you decide to do it? Oh, it was totally not ready, and it was totally frightening, and that's the only reason to do it. That, you know, if you look at the blog post I put up when I posted it, I didn't say, this is guaranteed, certain, super tested, you're going to love it, it's perfect. I didn't say that because I trust my readers and they trust me, and so I needed to say, this is what we're going to try. And if you want to be part of the first iteration, I'd love for you to do that. The That feeling of that cold, white fear is something that I need to, to feel present to know I'm doing my very best work, not just doing my job. When I do my job, I know how to do my job. And I, I don't disappoint the audiences when I give a live talk because that's my job and I know how to do it. And I can bring new material, but I don't show up and say, here's an hour of new material that I've never done in public before because that's not my job, right? My job is in that moment to teach things that I know work in an environment I'm familiar with. I've done it thousands of times. But the work for me is not just doing the sequel, which is why coming here is weird because I've done this with you before. If I'm going to try to do it better than the last one, we'll both fail. I thought of it ahead of time, too. So I'm glad you brought that up. I'm, I'm not, I decided we're just going to have a conversation. I was almost not going to bring anything to ask you specifically for that reason. We're not chasing the podcast we did last time. The podcast we did last time exists for people. That was a conversation um, uh, between two people who had just gotten to know one another you know, in the months leading up to it. And uh, people can find that sort of uh, and listen to it. But what I wrote down, like the one thing I wrote, um, that, and I thought we could almost talk about the whole time, was fear. Bar- these are the things I wrote down. Fear, barriers to entry, and why we still have comfort in gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, as I know you see all the time, people ask these questions to you, to me. And when you get underneath them, or when I get underneath them, you know, the, the question will be on its face. Can you help me make a connection to somebody who can help me? Yeah, sure. But they're, what, they're, what I hear at, after all this time, because I, I say, well, you know, I do. I say, like, go, go read The Dip by Seth Godin or go look at Do Over by John Acuff. Or, um, you know what? Um, you don't actually need that connection. Put your work online. Or your brilliant essay about agents. Right. Yes. The essay I wrote about agents on my blog. Thank you. Um, and then they say, yeah, yeah, I get that. But how, I don't, how do I get an agent? Right. And so to me, what's underneath it is this need for validation. They, that people want someone, this is my sort of reduc- reduction of it, is they want some figure to tell them they're good enough or that their thing is valid or... Um, they're so frightened of uh, failing. In another. So what do you think? Is right, so, so let's go talk, into this. There's a whole it. bunch of Please, things. Please, this is what I'm... All right, the first thing is there's a huge difference between reassurance and validation. Yes. And reassurance is futile because there is not an infinity of reassurance and that's how much we need. Right. It's, it's not like uh, is uh, a million, you know, is $100 enough. Right. But, but reassurance goes even beyond that because... If we're doing our work, we're at some edge. And if you need reassurance, you cannot be at that edge. Validation is different. Validation used to mean that if you were on the lot at MGM or whoever had a lot, you'd been validated by a key person. And then you didn't need reassurance because you had, quote, power. And you may remember all those magazines used to, quote, list the 100 most powerful people in Hollywood. Well, the only thing that made those people powerful was at some level they had a stamp that said, you are valid and I'm giving you some of my power. The gatekeeper thing now kicks in because gatekeeping, as it fades, takes away the power of validation. Yeah, right. Right? And so now we're, we're replacing it with a need for reassurance. 
And what I'm trying to sell people is two things. One, tension is the goal. Tension is a symptom that you are doing good work. Tension is not to be avoided. And one of the ways to get rid of tension is to seek reassurance. Don't do that. And the second thing is trust the process. And you spend time in the writer's room. The writer's room often feels like it's all over, that cancel the show, nothing's working. But the process says, come back tomorrow. That the process says, let's put more tension on the table, come back tomorrow. And if we come back tomorrow enough times, we know enough about the process of the writer's room, we'll end up with a script. If we bring enough tension, if we don't just try to get rid of the tension by putting out crap. Right? So what I'm trying to do in this course, what I'm trying to do in my books, is I don't write Permission Marketing for Dummies Volume 2 Handbook because there's no tension in any of that. That's just a manual. We don't need manuals. The Internet's filled with all the shortcuts. What we need are places we can go, whether it's the safety of a book or an in-person interaction, where tension is welcome. And if we're going to someone and saying, please relieve the tension, we're wasting everyone's time. We need to go to people and say, please, may I have some more tension? May I have more uncertainty? Yeah. So I get that. And, I, and it was a giant transition in my life when I was 30. That part of what it, that was was uh, wanting it. And now I recognize it. You know, you walked in here and I was playing my acoustic guitar and you jokingly said like, oh, are you writing a, a thing? But one of the re- I write songs and one of the reasons I write songs is because I'm a primitive at it. It's hard uh, I love doing it. Yeah. It fires something in me creatively exactly. that nothing else does. Exactly right. And I play the songs for people sometimes, which is horrifyingly scary to do. But the reward of that is I get to feel like I'm creating. Right. In a risky way. And I know it bleeds into the other stuff. It makes it... For sure. I love the arena stuff. So most of the people who are listening don't know that you have not only sat next to the greats in the music industry, but brought them to the world, right? I yeah. mean, it's astonishing. You've, uh, I have worked with those people, and some of the people who listen to the show know, yeah, I yeah. used to be in their music business right. and work with... Um, but the cool thing is, you're not saying, that's for other people. I'm not allowed to go there. Nor are you saying, that's trivial, it's easy, I'm going to go be them. You're doing exactly the right thing, which is to say, there's work here. I could choose to do this work at my level... Because the act of doing it feels exactly the same to me as it felt to Tracy Chapman to write Fast Car. It's not going to be a hit for you. Doesn't matter. It's not about what other people think. It's about the fact that you danced with the tension and then finally released it in creating a song. And that's enough because then you can bring that to the thing you get paid to do and actually do work. Then the job, then within the job, you can dig in and do like the and do the work, right? Because you're 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 conditioning yourself to want it. It's why I did stand up. It's why you have tried all sorts of different things. And so, how do you now for yourself? So I like will go and write these songs and play them, and I'll you know, and like you know, you talk about. I'll go and try to get the songs um, covered. You know, I'll go to Nashville and do a writing trip, and I've done it. And it's terrifying. But then when you have a moment where something connects in some way, it's a different kind of validation. It rewards that you didn't just go like, hey, I'm going to write a song. Ah, this word will be fine, and this melody line. It's like that you actually, like, really tried to get everything out of yourself that you... Right. Get out of yourself. Where do you find that now for yourself? Some of it is missing. And I've been, as you know, searching for it for a year or two. Um, It means a lot to me to watch the book industry fade away. Um, I care very much about the people in that industry. And I was ready to just trust the process and do my work in that medium. Because I'd reached a point in that medium where I could be comfortable in my craft, where I had people who wanted to read my work. And as that medium has lost a lot of its edge, it doesn't offer me that same need, that same fire of having to dramatically up something in order to do it. Because the, the marketplace is corrupted by all the noise that's around it. So if I'm going to measure what a lot of people measure, what I'll do is I'll write a gimmicky book. 
And I don't want to write a gimmicky book. I want to write a book with craft in it. So the amount of craft I had to bring to building the Alt-MBA school feels to me like the craft that I had to bring early on when I was writing a book about something no one had ever written a book about before. And it's that playing with various media, which I've been doing since 1980, right? Playing with, with educational computer software, then playing with being the first generation online. 1989, I was building stuff for Prodigy, right? And so these medium, as they change, offer me this fresh powder where I can say, I'm not going to follow what someone else did. I'm going to do something that quite likely won't work, but I'm going to trust that I can keep cycling it to figure out how is it that people will interact in this media medium. And um, what's fascinating as, as I approach 55 is that the length of the cycles keeps getting shorter, which is the opposite of what usually happens, but that's because of the outside world. So it used What do you mean by that? So it used to take, you know, my arc at Prodigy was three and a half years. It took three and a half years from the time I started until I built the most popular online game that had ever been. And now the arc in the online world is six weeks, right? That you go, that how long did it take Slack to be worth a billion dollars? Nine months, right? That it's supposed to take nine years, not nine months. So what that means is you, the good news is you get to keep teeing up the next thing. The bad news is it's hard to milk it for a process because once it's done, it's not fresh powder anymore. You can improve it, but it's not like, oh, we have no idea. But also milking it for a process for you has become in itself something you don't want to do. Well, that's part of my fear, right? I mean, part of your thing is that that... Because boredom for you is like a really bad thing, right? Or feeling like you're not churning and giving. It's more like a lack of discipline, right? That uh, which you mean to have to keep. Yeah, to to do to go from four sigma to six sigma. Yeah, other people are so much better at that than I am. That I'm better to leave that to them than for me to be in the business of figuring out how to get response rates to go up a little bit or make sure that the, the last 3% of the people who didn't get something get it. And, and I think that part of the craft of Twitter, which is why I don't tweet, is constantly refining that process. That Twitter has so few degrees of freedom that it is a really good medium for people who are good at not um, wanting there to be a boundary you should break. Can't break a boundary. You, know, you can send five tweets in a row, but a tweet is a tweet. Right. Whereas, you know, when I was trying to remake email and how it was understood in 1991, you could break any rule you wanted. As long as it fit into the SMTP protocol, whatever it was called, you could do it. Right. Now we find that different medium media have much more refined rules. I like inventing the rules, not trying to live inside. Though, interestingly, Norm McDonald has taken Twitter and... He'll, he's doing, and it's a weird thing to say, but like, because I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I agree that the, that the 140 characters, like you'd be amazing at it, I think. The, if you, John, I asked John Acuff what he'd want me to ask you, and I'll tell you what he okay. said. But one of the questions was that you say, you said on the last podcast, Twitter wouldn't be good for you. And he didn't understand what you meant by oh, that, because he that, thinks you'd be great what, at this it. This is not what, that's not the part of Twitter that would be bad for me. So I will explain that part. The reason Twitter is bad for me, really bad for me, is... I have a significant challenge with anonymous trolling. Right. Yeah, you said that last time. That is, so it's about the crit. It's about dealing with what you know it creates some emotional turmoil with hearing bad stuff. You can't use Twitter without reading what people are saying back. No, you have to read and what they say back. That I would just between that and the ADD, I'd be like in this in the middle of this interview, You'd I'd be, be checking and I'm like, well, I don't tweeting. need any of that. What Norm does, though, I just tell you, I don't know, do you know what he does? No. What He'll take um, a Sunday afternoon golf tournament, and he will live tweet every shot for five hours. Wow. And is he doing it ironically? You, I, you tell me. He's doing it. And it's fantastic. Oh, but so each tweet is a, isn't just like, like matching up the soundtrack of Wizard of Oz to some Pink Floyd it's, album. It's, he is commenting on every shot wow. played on television. Good for him. For four hours. Yeah. And at first, and it's one of those things, you know, the performance art piece where for the first five minutes, you're like, I'm gonna, I got I to gotta mute the guy. Right. 
But a half hour in, you know, you're riveted. And he's he is totally taken charge. People who've never watched golf, who sure. don't care about Norm Good before. How, and he's turned it in a way where when he's going to do that, like emails start going around to people and Norm's doing this and it becomes like right. an incredible kind of filibuster. Right. Yeah. And you wonder was that how much conscious thought went into that. You, you, I'll tell you when he's doing it. You can watch for 10 minutes next time. I'm in. Yeah, I'm it's in. a great thing, though. It's a really fun thing. But And and there are some people... Who, I'll send you some stuff because there's some people who are doing it on politics now, too. But we're getting, that gets off the... We the, I want to just stuff. put one more insert and then you go back to your list. Go. Uh, I'm not mentoring you. I never have mentored you. Well... I would say... I'm your friend. And yes, what we're friends. what I do as a friend, which is different than what some people do as a friend, yes. is if you ask me to come paint your house, I might say yes. But if you ask me about something that you're wrestling with, nothing makes me feel more connected to somebody than being able to talk about it. Yeah. But, right? I, but we are... I yes, we're peers. No, we are totally peers. If anything, I'm trying to catch up to your insight. No, we're... Thank you. That's nice of you to say. No, we're peers. But um, because, as you know, people... Because people... There aren't that many people that I can go to who've had experience in, in a way that I haven't had and who will, I know, offer me the most clear-eyed advice that they can. Well, thank you. And so for, let's talk about it. You know, we're on a podcast and I think, you know, yesterday a kid came to see me and uh, told me that he, he really wanted uh, to be in, the movie, in movies and TV and I agreed to see him. He was a friend of a friend. Um, and he told me he was writing comedies and I had to tell him we spent 20 minutes together. He wasn't, he hadn't made me laugh. <laughs> I said, you know, are you sure comedy is what you want to do? But we're, uh, at the end, my wife showed up and we're with, with this kid and he said that he went to Madison and Amy remembered that Jill Soloway, who created, sure. you know, the incredible show um, uh, on Amazon that Jill Soloway went to Madison too. And she said to him, um, you know, you should reach out to Jill Soloway. You should, you, and this kid was telling me, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. He's probably listening. I'll do anything. And he said, I wouldn't know where to start. How would somebody do that? What would, and he was th he's 30. So I'm saying kid, but he's 29 years old. And so this is what led me to, like, like obviously he knows that you can tweet find an email, write a letter, call an alumni office. There's 40 things that... That's not even his problem. His problem is he likes being an unsuccessful creator of writing. Yes, you he talked about the Starbucks them. people last right. time. But how do you think people... Uh, what's the comfort in that? Oh, the comfort is fabulous. It's fabulous because... The story you get to carry around with you is bulletproof. It's insulation. It's the outside world doesn't understand me. The outside world is against me. The outside world won't give me a break. If only they would, then my genius would come out. But right now, I'm just an outsider. And as long as you're carrying that around, you are safe. It has completely transferred all the responsibility to someone who is not you. And so when you say to somebody, which is what I usually say to people who are uh, nonfiction writers or even fiction writers, finish your first book and then email it in a nicely laid out PDF to 100 people. Just give it away. If it's good, it'll get to 10,000 people and then you'll have no trouble selling your second book. If it's not good, it's a good thing you gave it away because no one's going to publish it anyway. Right? right. And not one person has taken this advice. Not one. Because as long as you are carrying around your not very good novel and no agent will represent you and no publisher will publish you, you're safe. Yeah, it's very hard. I think that that's right. Uh, that's right, but the story is so intractable that people tell themselves. You know, I told myself the story. We've all told ourselves sure. a version of, of that story. Yeah. That you wonder sometimes what it will take for them to allow themselves the chance at actually being happy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You just put a whole bunch of, of stuff on that person that they didn't ask you to put. Well, they, they might be happy they right now. No, they, tell you that they don't tell you they're miserable within the first... But saying that they're miserable makes them happy. <laughs> Fine. The semantics are very important here. 
nobody follows one of these paths consistently with consistent choices unless those consistent choices are taking them to a place that at some level they want to be. They well, could change the choices. It's not like they have a chemical dependency. Well, yeah. I mean, people would say that they've... Um They've trained their physiology to react to it, actually. That sure. it gives them, it's the pellet to the rat. It's right. what they actually need to feel like themselves. Yes. So there isn't like a little homunculus that's making these rational choices. Their whole body is making the choice. But the point is that part of the action is coming up to semi-strangers and asking them for the key to the Emerald City. And then when you give it to them, they somehow drop it. That. Right. Right. So that does that drive you crazy? Is that do you? No, because that, that's why I don't do any coaching or consulting. Because a figure, if someone hires me to be a consultant, they want me to solve their problem, and I can't solve their problem. All I can do is turn on some lights so they can solve their own problem, and I'm much happier doing that for large numbers of people as widely as I can than to have to sit with one person and be their therapist at the same time. So what I'm saying to people is. You know what? Here's a microphone. If you want to talk, talk. If you want to sing, sing. I can point to the story of Amanda Palmer. I can point to the story of Steve Pressfield. I can tell them to read this. Their paths are well lit. That, that Way more lit than you and I had to deal with a long time ago, right? For sure. And so it doesn't mean they're easy. It doesn't mean they're not uphill. It doesn't mean they work for everyone. It doesn't mean there aren't people with less talent who are getting more than you, because there are. All it means is there's a lot of randomness going on in this. You, you, the lottery tickets don't cost that much, but if you don't buy lottery tickets, you can't win. And the work is refusing to follow the person who came before you. The work is going to an edge that makes you interesting enough that you're not just a work for hire. Well, yeah, when you said, so yes, this brings us back. When you said you're not a mentor, and I appreciate the distinction, you know, you gave me just the the best advice about this show, which was... And, and it's a question I want to ask you, which is, how did you learn not to chase the shiny thing? You know, we all chase the shiny thing. We don't, and, and sometimes we don't realize we were chasing the shiny thing until we have it. But uh, there was a moment at the beginning of this when it was starting to, I was starting to, you know, g gain an audience that I could tell was reacting. And we were, you know, some people are listening on Slate and they're newer if they're listening in the Slate feed. But the people who are listening on my, you know, the moment with Brian Cobbleman feed, they've been listening for a year and a half or two years. Thanks, guys. They have, which is great. And they have a real, we have a real relationship. And there was a moment where I was feeling pressure to book more famous guests. People were offering those guests to me. And where I could have taken the show and done other things with it. And you said, and it was great. You said, like, remember why you do the show, why you wanted to do this. And then you said, what if you just concentrate on doing the best version of that show, the show that you want with only people in the chair that you absolutely need in the chair? And it was the clarifying thing that I think made me now know that, like, um, I'll, ne may I'll never have the biggest podcast, and I don't, I don't care about it, but I'll have, uh, hopefully be able to engage in conversations that... Um, that I care about so much, that the person sitting across from me cares about so much, that, that people listening will feel it and know that we're not bullshitting. I don't know. You, that was your counsel to me. So it may not have the formal structure of a mentorship, but that was a moment of mentorship, right? Friendship. I, friendship. Um, so when I was in high school, I ran five different times to win one election or another. And I lost every single time. And then I promised I wouldn't run for anything else. And I got to college and there was some storm thing or whatever. And I was unopposed and I lost. <laughs> you lost unopposed. Yeah. We went to the same college at and, different times. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I wish I had known you then. We were only a year apart, two years apart. Anyway. No, no, we were six years apart. Six years, so I couldn't yeah. have known you. Anyway, um, so then I got to Stanford Business School and I was the second youngest person in the class. And a whole bunch of people who had worked two years, horrible years in an investment bank as an intern, came up to me and said, ooh, you're in trouble. You're way too inexperienced to be here. So there was this narrative going on, which is I needed to be popular. I needed to win the shiny prize. I needed to show people that. And, uh, you know, saying it, it's sort of, 
weird to say it now because most people view Stanford as the shiny prize. But within every place, there's the pecking sure. order, right? I was at the bottom of that pecking order. And something clicked inside. Um, I got a job uh, for the summer as assistant to the president of Activision, which was the fastest growing company in the history of the world at the time. And I was going to like sit in his office and be Jim's assistant. And then my wife, who hadn't been my wife yet, called and said, I'm not coming to California for the summer. So I had to turn down that job and go find something in Boston. And the job I got in Boston wasn't at Lotus. It almost was. Wasn't at Infocom. They offered me the job, and then they took it back. It was at this little company no one had ever heard of. And a light flipped on for me, which is I was way happier working on something that no one had ever heard of, where I could do this work, where I say, I made this, than being some, you know, gopher at Apple, which in 1985 would have been, you know, an interesting place to be. Uh, and ever since then, in the, in the book publishing world, in the entrepreneurial world, in the internet world, you know, my internet company, when I was building it, 96, 97, everyone's web, 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 web. And I was like, I don't think so. Email, email, email. And I probably would have won bigger if I had built yet another web company. But the fact that I could lead a group of people and craft something that was on the edge, that felt more like me. And so I still get distracted by the shiny things in that way, because the media wants us to. But I work very hard to say, I'm not picking that. Let somebody else play that game. Yeah, when you say you work hard at it, how? How do you how do you try to recognize when you know what Pressfield says? Look and listen for which is on the higher. I mean, he says spiritual plane. I, yeah. um, but Pressfield talks about yeah you know, the higher the higher plane. Which thing is um more true to your calling? That's not always uh, always easy to to know. Right, right. Because any especially for, for you, because any of these things you can tell yourself are also helping people. You can right. tell yourself all of it is helping people, right? It all is, because you know why? Because it all is helping people. You're doing, I mean, you're giving, you hear back from them. So here's, so how do you figure some, it some out? Of, some of the hard work. Uh, is my agent more famous than yours? Am I outranking you on the uh, Amazon bestseller list? How much traffic came to my blog yesterday, the month before, compared to six months before that? Uh, how big an advance did I get compared to Malcolm Gladwell? But I don't keep track of any of those things. I have no idea on purpose. Because That's once, huge. once you head down that thing, you have grievances. Well, this is reassurance again. So you're committed to not getting that reassurance. Right. And so you're naked, but you also want to air your grievances. Someone steals your idea and does great things with it. You want to air those grievances. But I don't. I'm saying, no, good for you. Steal more of my ideas. You got a $2 million advance for your first book? Fabulous. I'm very happy for you. Because if I keep track of those things, I will want to make them go up. Right. And, and you know, the, I got to see this more clearly than most because in 1999, 2000, before the internet bubble burst, I was a free agent who had just come off selling his company. I could have picked any project. And Bill Gross, who's a fabulous idea guy, came to me and offered me $1 billion in stock options to join his company. And I said to myself when I turned it down, this is great because never again do I have to worry about whether I'm turning down too good a deal? Because this is the best deal I'm ever going to get offered, and I turned it down. And then the bubble burst, and my billion dollars was worth zero. So it worked out, but it got me out of the habit of saying, compare and chase and have grievances. Instead, I'm saying, compared to what I would have done if I had pushed myself harder, compared to what I would have done if I was braver, does this piece of work stand up? Am I building more trust and more connection with this, or did I try to take a shortcut? That's what I'm comparing myself to. That's what you're thinking about on a daily basis. Every 10 times a day. 10 times a day, you're thinking about how can I be even like more of the thing uh, that I want to be? How can I, you're really saying to yourself, how can I offer more value? Like, I don't mean value, like I'm um, in the way someone would say, hey, I'm going to throw in a thing. But how can how I... How can I seek less reassurance? Yes. And how can I find that platonic ideal of what I set out to do, the change I am trying to make in the world, and make that change happen more? So if I got an email from Pakistan, which I did this morning, and someone I have never met and never will meet 
found the thread of six things I did and put it to use in something I could never imagine doing and grew as a result of that and I make zero from it and no one else knows it happened, I'm thrilled. That's the best thing that could happen to me all day. Do you write that person back? Always. Then they write you back again and then you find a way to... I've gotten better writing notes back to people that acknowledge them, that thank them and make it clear that they're probably not going to want to... Because that is another version of the shiny thing is like you, um, all these people writing and um, and engaging in sort of a spiral of um, becoming a guru. Because it seems you've also really tried to avoid becoming that. When I think about it, the other thing you could do... Uh, you know, you could very, very easily go around the country and do Seth Godin seminars that would sell out all over the place and you'd make a fortune. I know you go speak at seminars. I, I, could, I know you do that. I could do the Seth Godin action figure. Oh, wait, I did do no, the Seth Godin action figure. Huh. And the reason we did the Seth Godin action figure for charity was to make fun of the fact that some people think I'm a guru. It's a joke, right? The whole figure, it's from Archie McPhee, my favorite store, and... You know, they. I tried to talk them into it, and they said, that's an interesting idea. And they called me back a year later. They said, um, David Sedaris turned us down. <laughs> you are <laughs> second great. choice. Which is perfect. That's excellent. Right? Perfect. But the thing is, when I do these road trips, I haven't done one in three or four years, they're structured in a way that's insanely grueling. No staff, maybe one person, all volunteers. I'm on stage for nine hours doing Q&A in a historic theater sure that any moment the whole thing is going to fall apart because that is a form of doing this art that is a form of saying how can i stretch it so thin it becomes translucent how can i be in a place where people look at each other and go he's not stopping he's not stopping and so they can't stop and so they're suddenly extending themselves and Yes, seven years later, I hear from someone who is at one of those. Because it's not my job, it's my work. And the minute it becomes my job, I stop doing it. For all this stuff. Yeah. And is that part of why after you wrote those three books, you took a while off before writing the next book? Well, the... You know, the three in a row, when you wrote the, the three... The four Kickstarter row. books. You know, Kickstarter was early in their days. And the, the thought was, this is a new medium. What can I do with it? And also the thought was... Finally, there was this tool I could use to get the bookstores to understand that this section of the bookstore, which they didn't like, actually had quite a following, and that they could support this. So it all fit together and worked for me. But writing four books, editing them, laying them out, designing them, and shipping them in 100 days was really work. It was a sprint, where so there was not a lot of filtering going on. I was making decisions that were sure. truly raw, yeah. and I was proud of that. But... And then I was done. I was like, oh, there's nothing left for me to do that's interesting in the book world. And I really was done. And the only reason that What to Do When It's Your Turn came out was because I did this audio for, uh, for Terry at um, Tammy at Sounds True. And Tammy's been a hero of mine for a long time. So when she asked, I instantly did it. And I'm listening to this audio. I really love the audio that I made. And I, I only said, know the book. I don't know the audio. I have to get yeah, it. Yeah, the audio is called Leap First. And, um, and we, it's a benefit for acumen, and it's raised uh, good money, which I'm very thrilled by. Yeah, I thought I um, knew all your style. But anyway, I said, some people won't listen to an audio, so I need to make a book. Ver- so I did the opposite. Instead of making an audio of a book, I made a book of the audio, and that's what led to your turn. And it needed to be visual because it was, I didn't just want to make a transcript. Yeah, you referenced it, but I, somehow I just haven't heard it. I, um, and I will, but I want to I go back because... So this all makes sense, and it's very uh, clear about these moments in, in, in your life and how you look at it all. But, you know, you just sort of, you did say the last year and a half or so, it's been hard for you to find the thing that feels like the work. But for the first time in memory, I'm not beating myself up. I don't feel like I'm going to die tomorrow. I don't feel... You mean if you can't? I will it. eventually find it. But it used to be that every day I was between was horrible. Just horrible. Why? Wasted opportunity, but more than that, uh, missing that feeling that is my best companion. Right. Yeah. That it, it's, it is still... My, my friend Tony Gilroy, the screenwriter, t- talks about that moment that happens a couple of times a year where you feel you have a secret. 
Yeah. And you walk around the city knowing you're the only person who has the secret. Exactly. Not the secret like it's going to change the world. It's your little secret. Exactly. It's what you have when you have these breakthroughs. It's Tony. And it is true. You have a moment where you come up with something and you go, oh, that's. Oh, that's going to fire me up. I can, I can, I, this is the fuel that can burn for me for six. I can burn this for six months. Yeah. And I've done it. You know, there's been a couple. I built a, a, a really ornate business plan that was, I think, super valuable, really juicy, commercially uh, big, and started putting people together for it. And then I looked at it and I said, I should have done this five years ago. Five years ago, this would have been the kind of thing that made me thrilled. And now it would just be because I'm looking to start a business and I'm not. You would be trying to kind of gin up the feeling without it being legit. Yeah, so it just it sits on the hard drive and then you look for the next thing. Um, and it will come and I want it to be something that changes not everyone's culture, but a culture in a way that leaves people that culture significantly better off. How do you go about, what's your process for trying to figure that stuff out? Um, it's a scenario planning sort of thing. It's a series of assertions. So, Do you do this on a daily basis? How do you yeah, do it? I do it many times a day. So what does that mean? So you notice something in the world, right? That's where it always And what's your practice of noticing? Are you conscious, like, like um, you're just going through your life and you make yourself... It's a little like Mystery Science Theater 3000. Right. Like there's the running comments. Every right. single thing I see. Yeah. Right? Like the West Village, the streets aren't in order. There should be a sign here with a map on it. Cons it never right. goes It's the off. ADD OCD paying off, actually. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then you notice something. Email is broken. Email is broken is an easy thing to notice. Then you start making assertions. Well, what would happen if, if this end of the email chain was organized? What would happen if this happened? And then... Oh, wait, I assert that that could happen. If that happened, could I build an organization that would own that process? And if I did that, what leverage could be applied to this part of the process? And then what resources would be required, but would revenue come in to match those resources? And it layers and it layers and it layers until it's an argument of the best sort. And then for you, does the fe- do you get sort of the intellectual thing locking in or does the feeling start where you know, oh, this is one of those things? Like, because you see that if you're looking all day, you know, you're, it's that feeling. Okay, so I don't know if I've blogged this, but I just, if I haven't, it will come eventually, which is this idea of buzzer management. So when I was in high school, I founded the It's Academic Quiz team. And, and they I- still didn't elect you to office? <laughs> And then we, were, we, we did tryouts, and I wasn't good enough to be on the team. I just started the team. So I was the coach of the team, and I built the buzzers with the relays and everything. And the reason I wasn't able to, to be on the team is my buzzer management skills were poor. That for whatever wiring or fear reasons, even though I knew the answer, I was never the one who buzzed it. So here's the secret to buzzer management, because public announcement Three months ago, Hastings High School, which has one of the best quiz teams in the country, has a fundraiser. Parents are invited, and my team won. For the first time, I came in fifth every year. This team, this year, my team won. Congratulations. And the reason we won is because I figured out buzzer management. And this is the secret of buzzer management. You must press the buzzer before you know you know the answer. So they're reading the question. You say to yourself, I'm the kind of person who knows the answer to that question, buzz. And then in between you buzzing and they calling on you, you figure out the answer. If you buzz before you know the answer, buzzer management works way better. So the question here is, does the feeling come before the idea or the idea come before the feeling? Which do I have to have first? So buzzer management is a sequel to the dip. It's not a blog post. Buzzer management is a short book. There we go. You could write the foreword. I'll write the foreword, but that's a short book, man. That's a book we all need because what you're talking about, I mean, it is what you talk about, is accept, is taking the risk to leap in when you know that you can solve it. You believe you can do it. Right. And so, you know, uh, don't look to meet, meet your, uh, ask someone if your cousin knows a contact who can introduce you to an agent. You know you can do it. Fucking go do it. Yeah, that's what Poke the Box is about. Comes right. out in hardcover, new edition in September. Yes, but Buzzer Management. That's a great title. You have to write that book, or Seth. It could You'll be a write movie. it quickly. It could be a movie. Seth, I have to tell Writing you. Writing books is not the hard part. I have to tell you it's not a movie. I'm sorry. What, with Robert Redford? It's so, writing books is not the hard part. Publishing books is the hard part. Publishing is not printing. Publishing is taking a risk 
to bring an idea to people who don't know the idea exists. You should write Buzzer Management as a book and you should give it to 100 people. There we go. And give it just to 100 people and tell them to do whatever they want with it. There we go. And see what happens. I'll see what I can do. And what I imagine will happen is that 100,000 people will very quickly have the book and there will be something in it where then they can do something, a way of giving back, a way of doing something that they got as a result of getting to read the book. And I bet you that something positive will come from, That's why from it's a blog you post. doing that. It'd be a long blog post. If I work really hard, it'll be shorter. Well, yeah, that's the famous thing. But, you know, the lately I've noticed that you've you've thrown... So, Seth, your blog, I'm just going to tell people, you know, your, your blog, which is at Seth, um, sethgodin.com. If you click on my head, it's really at sethgodin.typepad.com. But you go to sethgodin.com. Or just type sethgodin.com. Or blog. If you type blog, you'll find my blog. Right. Because you were into the whole SEO thing before anybody no, else No, I was. don't do any SEO at all. a long time ago. No. Even then? No. Because it's part of uh, measuring. But I get it by email every day, which is wonderful. Thank it's you. a great thing uh, to get every day. And, and yeah, I figure I don't write you every day when I get it because I, I think you must have so many people that who write you. That would be too many. Yeah, it many. seems like it would be just too many to yeah, get. But today's post was, I'm really proud of today's post. Yeah. About what, expectation. It was, yeah, today's post was that, really good. That when we hold a mirror up to other people, the person they see in that mirror is the most important thing they're going to see all day. That what we expect of the people around us is uh, the way we determine what our culture is like. And the disparities in our culture, the stereotypes, the racism, the differences in income and in nationality, all of that pays, we all pay a penalty because the expectation that people have of themselves is this soft form of racism, which is they already don't think that they're entitled to X or entitled to Y, and so they don't do the work to get X or to get Y, because why should they? And when you talk to people at Harvard Business School who expect that they're going to get a job at Bain, that's why they'll pull an all-nighter. Right. No, you wrote that. I mean, you wrote that in the thing today as compared to people in uh, in another setting. No, it's true. You know, as you know, my son goes to Harvard and he's uh, just finished his freshman year. And one of the biggest insights I've had about it is when I'm with Sammy and his friends from there, it's not that they have an expectation that the world's going to give it to them, but that the thing that's been conferred upon them tells them it's the validation, not reassurance. It's validation exactly. that if if they put in the effort, because most people, I think, we're all scared. If I do put in maximum effort and I'm still not good enough, then I'm really a failure, right? Exactly. That's why we, they hold back. It's why we, except for those people. Yes. It's why people hold back because they're afraid. What if I really extend myself and then I don't get it? And I watched Sammy this summer. He had, he got himself an incredible job that he's always wanted working on a TV show. He's doing all this amazing stuff, a real job. And, uh, but he and his friends had been working on a startup idea and he, he'd worked for a couple of years to get this job opportunity. And he just came, wrote us and said, you know, I'm not going to take that job. Wow. Because, uh, I know that I have a chance to do this other thing. And I'm, and so he and his friends, he has, they you know, eight programmers working with them. They're making a thing. Wow, good for them. Well, but but I wonder sure. when people ask what the difference. I mean, look, our, you know, um, maybe he does that anyway. But I have to think some part of it is what's the change between last summer when I know that he's taken that job and this summer. Yep. It's not the difference between eighteen and nineteen. It's part of it has to do with yeah what it means when you're at that place. Mm-hmm. And so how can we, now that's wonderful because it works out great for, for my son. But part of what you want to do is eliminate the need for that. Well, I want to do two things. First of all, expectation is different. We need expectation. It's a placebo. It works. And it scales. We can spread expectation without hurting your son. We can spread expectation without taking away the expectation that people already have it. So what great parenting is, is not saying, you're perfect, you're perfect, you're perfect. For sure. It's saying, I expect that you will have all these doors open to you, but your responsibility that goes with that is that I expect all this effort. Oh, yes. Right? That and, great study. Yeah, so we can we can spread that idea. We can spread the idea that people who look like this 
should be expecting as much as people who look like that. And that meme, spreading that meme, that's pretty new. Like in the Middle Ages, there was zero of that. And now there's some of it. Well, there was no expectation you'd get to 20. No, well, there was an expectation if you were related to the king. Sure. Right? And so now there are more people who we can spread that idea to. So when I'm doing work with Acumen and I'm uh, you know, in a fertile valley of Kenya working with this farmer, she expects that she's going to be a millionaire in Kenyan shillings, which is not a real millionaire for us, but still, and can put all nine of her kids for, through private school, even though her neighbor is a subsistence farmer. And the difference between the two of them is not the land. It's not the access to resources. They have exactly the same land. They have exactly the same access to resources. The only difference is that Lucy expects better things. And this guy is just trying to stay alive. And spreading this idea, and Lucy has passed it on to her kids, that's how we're going to change the world. So how do you think people whose parents didn't help them get the expectation, right? Because people who look to you or look to, other, you know, um, you know, much smaller level other people, often what you hear is, you, what you hear underneath it is like people have told them they're not good enough. Right. What resources do you think there are to help people figure out that they can? Because I even think some books now try to go the other way. You know, a big theory is like, um, I think Tom Rath writes good, very interesting books and says some really smart things, but... You know, one of the things is like uh, it's it's cruel to tell people to chase their dream um, because what if they're not qualified to chase their their dream? Can I dissect that, for please? A okay. The word dream yes. is really different than everything else we've been talking about. By my definition, a dream is an impossible place to hide. That's why it's a dream. What's a better word? Well, if you have a realistic goal where you have access to the resources you'll need to achieve that goal if things go well for you. It's not your dream, it's your goal. So what I'm saying to people is, if you dream of being the next Julia Roberts, you're dreaming, you're hiding, you're looking to be picked and reassured, go away. If you say to me, I've seen a path followed by 1,000 people where they work as an intern and they work in the mailroom and then they work as a gaffer and then they work as a best boy and the next thing you know they're an ADA, then that's a goal. Because you can say, I need these resources, this kind of effort will get me to the next step eventually. But for artists, I, I wonder, because uh, here's what I, I wonder, it's, uh, how you draw this distinction. With the word realistic, I think, is a scary word. Be- and, and I think it can be used as a cudgel a little bit, that word. Of course. Because I think about Springsteen. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's as well known now as when we were younger. That, you know, you think you had a hard time in high school. I mean, Springsteen was booed off the stage at his own prom and everybody, so, you know, by all realistic, sort of by all signs, Springsteen was going let's a get foolish the, dreamer. Let's get in the Wayback Machine. And yeah, let's do Asbury it. Asbury Park, New Jersey. Yes. 1972. Well, by then he was... 64. I don't know how old yeah, he was. Sure. Right? Bruce Springsteen was not saying, I'm going to fill Madison Square Garden. Right. Bruce Springsteen said, maybe if I keep plugging, I'll play the Stone Pony. Yes, I, I can. That see. was not unrealistic. Even I though people s- around him said it was unrealistic. No, no, it wasn't unrealistic to say, I'm going to devote a couple years of my life to play the local bar. Because lots of people play the local bar. Because you don't need a strike of lightning to be allowed to play the local bar. And then after you play the local bar, it's not unrealistic to say, I want to get invited back to play the local bar. It's not unrealistic to work your way up. The dream is the guy who's sitting in his attic waiting to get YouTube traffic like Psy. That's dreaming. So what I'm saying is, how dare we say to people, let's not encourage people to pursue their dream because they might not be qualified. Because now we're judging who's allowed to be encouraged. What I think we ought to be saying to people, whether or not they won the parent lottery, whether or not they won the physical handicap lottery, whether or not they won the geography lottery, we're saying to people, what's the next step and the next step where you can hold yourself accountable, find the tools you need to do a thing that we expect you to be able to pull off. That is not saying to them, oh, be realistic. You have no talent. That's saying to you that there's always a next step for everyone. Let's go find that. There's always a next step for everyone is a great place to leave it because you have to be somewhere. I'm sorry. No, 
Um, hey, thank you so much for listening. Seth, thank you for doing this. I'm just quickly looking at John. John Acuff, whose book, Do Over, Great both book. of us love. And uh, he's my uh, good pal. And was He told me to tell you that he and his wife danced around the house like a band, hearing their song <laughs> on the radio for the first time when he got your blurb. Um on his book but uh, listen man thanks Seth Godin you can find him he just told you just type blog or Seth into Google I'm at Brian Koppelman on Twitter you can write to me themomentbk at gmail.com I read them all I really try hard to respond don't pitch me any and if ideas. you're thinking of sending me email send it to Brian no don't yes. don't no. send it to Brian uh, okay send then I'm going to forward them and I'll forward them right on to <laughs> Seth alright everybody thanks Seth thank you a pleasure